it's sometimes worth spending some time to look left and right. Is it really the use case that matters most or is it only the tip of the iceberg and the real issues lie below? Welcome to a brand new episode of our podcast, Human and AI, Mind, Machines and the Gradient Descent. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We are Case and Uli, we're your moderator for today. And our today's in his mind is Henning Oxenfeld. He is the head of data science and machine learning engineering at Siemens Digital Industries. Henning has both hands-on and managing experience in data analytics, and he is running machine learning applications in areas of signal processing, uh, digital energy grids, and discrete industries. So we're really stoked to hear what it actually means of having AI into the project of digital industries. So let's uh, just dive right into it. So Henning, we're really honored to have you with us. Uh, and actually what would be a nice thing to start with a short, maybe a couple minutes description of yourself about who you are. So the audience gets a nice introduction about yourself. So as I said, my name is Henning. I'm uh, 35 years old. I'm married. I have a son, which is almost two years old. I'm living in the hotspot of the Franconian area in Nuremberg City. Maybe I tell you a little bit about my background. Uh, I have a background in, in mathematics and I studied at uh, Denmark's Technical University. My journey to Siemens was um, interesting, I think, since during my master's and afterwards at the university, I worked on model predictive control for renewable energy integration and uh, price responsive energy systems. And there was a, a first pilot going on these days on the Danish island Bornholm and Siemens was a consortial partner uh, at that time. And within that project, they directly uh, recruited me. So basically, I only switched sides. And uh, from end of 2011, I, I worked for the smart grid department in Nuremberg on statistical modeling and uh, model predictive control regimes for renewable energy integration systems with Siemens. Yeah. And since 2014, I'm working for digital industries, mainly for uh, the industry service department, and I'm dealing with various uh, data science aspects and machine learning projects throughout various verticals. And I think we'll come to that uh, during our talk. Yeah, awesome. So that, that sounds like a geeky Vita, right? Isn't it, right? Speaking of, of geeks, uh, we, we identified that geeks have a, a high somehow relationship or correlation with, you know, uh, great coffee, but not only with coffee, but also with great music, isn't it? And so uh, the, the question is, are you, are you into music? What would you say, you know, given the last also maybe challenging time, right? We are currently in here in, in COVID-19 and so on, right? What's, what's on the hot rotation of Henning, you know? What's, What's the soundtrack like the last couple of weeks? Indeed, you're right. Uh, the correlation to music is, is 1.0 in that sense. I'm very much into music. So I, I learned uh, organ and church organ when I was young and uh, afterwards switched to, to trumpet. And um, yeah, in regular times, we're not dealing with Corona crisis. I'm playing in various bands and big band, mainly in jazz bands. And my hot rotation, therefore, uh, these days is a lot of big band play along on YouTube, which is basically replacing my physical bands I used to practice with. Yeah, 99%, I would say YouTube play along of, of jazz and big band music. What about the next thing uh, about you guys at work? Uh, so you guys, are, I, I know from, from background, uh, is that you're very much using uh, analytics and machine learning for industrial processes. Uh, and can you maybe share a couple of use cases around the industrial AI at Siemens that you guys are working on or really excited about? Uh, excited is the right keyword here. So um, personally, I love to, let's say with a mathematic or a computer science background, it's, it's always interesting to see uh, various uh, industries and especially 
here in digital industries, we deal with, let's say, food and beverage and electronics and automotive, battery, aerospace, so quite a lot of various stuff. And in our department, we focused uh, mainly on uh, predictive product quality, so to speak. Um, I'll explain that by some examples. In our electronic plants, for example, in Amberg, uh, we manufacture printed circuit boards for the electronics industry. And there we need to test all the boards uh, 100%. And the use case is, for example, to use um, the predictive power of data and, and machine learning models to um, circumvent a lot of hardware testing. So today everything is tested 100% and this predictions we can, for example, decrease a little bit the efforts. Or in another vertical like the automotive, it's exactly the other way around. We try to establish models here to predict the quality of welding points. Today, they only test one out of thousand, for example, and by means of predictive models, they want to increase the virtual test coverage up to 100% in order to cover uh, all welding points. Or very interesting cases from, for example, uh, food and beverage. We, um, in one use case, we're dealing with a beer quality prediction where we utilize models to model the relationship between a lot of input parameters towards the uh, target variable like a beer quality KPI. Very interesting project. And what you see here in all of the domains, we center our work around the models, of course. And this gives us a lot of possibilities in, in use cases. So be it in the beer uh, case, we can use the model to do some root cause analysis and find out which parameter drive beer quality most or have, have the greatest impact or the other um, use cases I mentioned, we use models for predicting. So the machine learning model or the analytical models in general are the basis for our industrial use cases. And it's, uh, as I said, really exciting to deal with this variety of domains. So if you're by yourself a geek, right, you, you're, you're working with fantastic uh, people and talent on, you know, technology experts. And one aspect, I guess, is, is always a bit of tricky is when you start engaging, especially in customer engagement, you know, we all are, you know, fascinated by the technology. And that's why we are coming with a technology driven approach to applications, right? And so it's like, hey, we see these capabilities of, you know, meta learning or deep nets or generative models or end to end reinforcement stuff right but when we then go to customers they say like i don't care actually about the technology right yeah i'm coming from a different spawn right which brought us in the lab to rethink okay how do we cope with let's say business-centric thinking first thinking design thinking you have also quite a high stack on and you know and, and set an emphasis on what's called the co-creation framework somehow okay can you elaborate how you do it and what's your thought on approaching the customer engagement here Yes, maybe a few words to the history. When I started out with all the data science projects, it was exactly like you said. I was fascinated and excited by a lot of technologies and said, okay, let's find customers or let's find projects and, and brute force massage them into the, into the technology uh, to make a fit happen. But I think the other way around, as you said, is, is the more sustainable one to center yourself around the customer and then by certain methodologies extract impactful use cases that really solve a problem and then it matter most to the customer and also have the potential for a business case. And some years ago, we had the idea to bring together design thinking and data science methods in order to set the fundaments for our projects right, to really work on use cases that are concretely formulated 
and uh, really solve a customer issue. And the, the spectrum of customers is very broad, so ranging from, uh, let's say, very ambitious customers with a digitalization ambition, and they say, let's do something with AI, or I also want to make use of the potential, up to the other range where people really have concrete project proposals and ideas. And to both ends, it's very important to, let's say, narrow the, the ambitious ones and come to a really concrete project you can work on. And on the already, let's say, concrete formulated project, it's sometimes worth spending some time to look left and right. Is it really the use case that matters most or is it only the tip of the iceberg and the real issues lie below? And between this uh, spectrum of, of customer maturity, I would say co-creating methodologies like, for example, design thinking and, and stuff like that helped a lot to set the basis right for our, yeah, for the subsequent technological work uh, in projects. And it's, uh, by the way, a great way to get a more mutual understanding of a project with a customer and don't have a, let's say, a handover. Here's the data. Here's my use case. Siemens, please work on it. This is more like the, the co-partnering and the co-creation that also yeah, helps in having this mutual understanding. Oh, great. Because that's a nice way of dealing with the, uh, with the, 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 the problem of how to do handover and understanding the problem. But there's also some different problems that you have in industry. Uh, for me, for example, I'm currently starting my master thesis on the topic of active learning in industrial AI, where I'm trying to deal with the problem of having not enough labels or at least uh, unclear labels and having to do things on the edge of the customer, like uh, machine learning models. And, and there's a lot of things that, that are not there when you talk about theoretical stuff, but when you go to practice, there's a lot of things you walk into. And, and like the data quality is one of them. But there's also different things like problems in the technology, the, the business, all these different things. So could you maybe share some of the challenges you're facing and maybe also the best practices of how to deal with these? I would say I would say two dimensions. Uh, one is technology and the other one, I would say it's people and, and culture. Let's start with the first one, technology. I think we could have another talk for a couple of hours to mention all the aspects that come into play when we talk about uh, say a solution or service or product development and, and really implement it in a sustainable manner. I, for example, could recommend the, the Google paper from Scali et al, where they talk a little bit about uh, in depth about the hidden uh, technical challenges. It, it's a nice aggregate there. But as you said, also data ownerships and data availability in industrial domains is not as good as, for example, in, you know, in public domain data. In most of our cases, we haven't had the luck to have tons of data with equally distributed labels and so on. Mostly we are dealing with highly imbalanced data sets. Domain expertise is really rare, and which is necessary to label the data accordingly. And also, if you've finished a proof of concept and you could show that there's some potential in data and in algorithms that you could solve the problem, it's still a hard thing to realize the savings. So really bring the decisions, the forecast, whatever you derive to the shop floor, integrate it into industrial automation systems from, from physical sensors up to the ERP systems. There are a lot of um, challenges coming along with that. And you know when you're talking to customers and you haven't had the chance to execute a POC and you don't know really if it's feasible at all to solve the challenge or it's also difficult to calculate business cases beforehand because for lots of the calculations you need a grasp on the model performances and there you sometimes end up in a chicken egg problem because customers of course want to know when the return on invest takes place and you know models are mainly giving some statistics and 
sometimes show a lot of variance and it's difficult to get concrete numbers there, which is, which is also a challenge. On the other hand, I said the second culture and people to, have, to get trust in your uh, AI solutions you, you, you worked on to really get the understanding to the shop floor engineers, because I mean, there's a totally different language between engineering roles on the shop floor and the academia roles, let's say, of the data scientists and the computer scientists. This language has to be brought together. And um, you asked about best practices. I experienced, let's say, the, the best practices tell the data story. And I mentioned it in the question before. If you can achieve a mutual understanding of your project and the customer is really engaged and engagement takes place, if you really tell by means of his data what you did with it, how you did with it, how you followed the logic, what you did with the model, how models work, and you, you get a close link there and you tell it by data visualization as well, then I think there is a good basis for yeah, establishing trust and, and coping a little bit with the people and, and culture aspects. Speaking of trust, right, I, I think from, from the hype on AI the last years, right, management, you know, and invests um, have been pushed towards, you know, let's get the AI journey started. Let's, let's you know, run the first, you know, POCs and let's bring up a funnel of POCs and everybody in the corporate inside as well as outside from our experience, right, has now these enormous sets of, of POCs running from digitalization, more effort like travel reimbursement, OCRs to really maybe hardcore also um, industrial machine learning aspects, optimization aspects, right? Though uh, there is still, I feel a bit of a tension because everybody is like, you know, I'm sick of the POCs. I, I want to have a scalable business model. I need to jump over and overcome this never-ending proof of concept thing, right? Uh, ain't going productive trap, right? What is that? Why it's so hard, you know, pushing POCs into productive? Can you share some, some kind of your thoughts on, on that? I'm happy that you asked that question because this is exactly the experience we made. POC is, is nice to raise the expectations to show in, I don't know, in Jupyter Notebooks the, the, uh, the potentials, but bring it to production and implementing it, as I said, sustainable this is a totally different story. And especially in industry, we made the pains or we, we experienced the pains of these efforts ourselves in, in use cases I mentioned before. What does it mean to deal with dynamic and changing ITOT environments? What does it mean to implement in mission critical environments? Because basically, sometimes you're replacing hardware with your model predictions. There are lots of efforts in, in implementing and uh, really getting out of this POC stage. And I would say, because you were talking about traps, I would say you you can't overcome the efforts that come along with it, but you can overcome the traps. And uh, here I would, um, I would mention it's very important to also mix in various other roles. So it's not only the data scientist anymore that follows up on productionizing his models. There's a lot of software development and engineering involved. So this is also what we do in our department to build up uh, mixed disciplines and, you know, get the machine learning engineers, get the software engineers with a data science view or perspective at least, and, you know, mix the analytical and the software world together, similar to as you do it in the, on the co-creation part where you bring business and analytics together and you need to translate. So um, I, I think skills and, and, and profiles of people and a realistic 
view on what does it take to implement an industry is very important. What about this other topic? So the, the automation of pipelines and machine learning, let's say also machine learning ops, ML ops, is a really big topic in the current times. And I think you can also resonate with the following quote, like TensorFlow and PyTorch are, are really nice open source tools, but they're also hard to scale. And what makes uh, specifically MLOps so, uh, so challenging to organizations? Scaling is the right keyword, I think. I think if you stick to a one-of-a-kind solution and you, you build a nice use case, then all these libraries uh, bring what you need. But as you said, if you think about how to, to scale, I think you should consider, again, two dimensions. One is degree of automation of your whole development and deployment and operation pipeline. And the other one is modularity, because you don't want to engineer from scratch each and every project. So uh, there should be some recyclement, like building blocks you uh, use over and over again. But when you look into the domains from connectivity up to the visualization, you, you find points where especially the recycling of, of models, for example, is, is really hard. Uh, so it's sometimes we have to, to fight against expectations. Uh, we think, okay, we did a project and we have a nice machine learning model developed. And now it's not, you, you can't really replicate it in a fashion copy and paste to other production lines or assets here. Let's say generalizability and transfer learning and all these points come into play. And it's uh, not an easy game to, you know, snip with your fingers and then you have a scalable business out there. Mm-hmm. But so, so a bit more specific, you know, what, what's from your perspective, right? Are the key ingredients for a reliable operation of ML in industrial environments? What, what is needed for having that? Any thoughts? I would say two, two main things. One is a high degree of automation throughout, throughout all the things you're doing. So from development on over continuous integration and continuous delivery pipelines for high-frequency software deployment. So for example, in our use case in, in our plant in Ambeck, we have a recovery time of 15 minutes. So we are basically forced to fix any bug or yeah, new feature within 15 minutes lead time. And here, if you have manual processes involved or people involved in building and packaging and deploying, it will be very uh, slow. So high degree of automation and, and uh, for high-frequency deployment, this is one part. And I think the other one is, since we are in industry and a lot of change and dynamics are going on, I said, I think comprehensive logging and monitoring of your deployed solutions is crucial. And here again, you shouldn't have people uh, watching logging data all day long. Uh, again, a high degree of automation is required in order to detect drifts of data and concepts and so on instantly when things happen. And, and let's say the reliable output can no longer be guaranteed in that sense. A different perspective about this automation part is, of course, where the data comes from and how you deal with data. And, and it's been a trend, I think. I'm not sure how, how long you've been in the industry, but for me as a, as a student uh, nearly finishing that a lot of data is now stored in the cloud and a lot of stuff is accessible in the cloud. It's a really big hype and all the courses I've had in cloud computing and, and so forth. But there's also a little bit of a hype I saw starting about the edge uh, computing and AI on the edge. And I just think that, especially if you go to industrial data and dealing with industrial customers, I think with confidential issues, you might have way more stuff you have to do on the edge. So what are the developments you see there and maybe challenges you're already facing when it comes to uh, AI on the edge? In general, I think I would agree that uh, there will be a shift in the future towards more AI on edge. We see it in our projects, data privacy concerns uh, are even bandwidth for various uh, data streams does not really allow uh, to put everything into cloud. 
And I think within Siemens, we have excellent preconditions here. So uh, on the one hand, we have all the great hardware portfolio for various edge devices and, and edge families. And on the other end, we have a great expertise in AI in various departments, ranging from corporate technology until the BUs and, and various disciplines. And I think uh, bring that together, let's say, more efficiently and really think end-to-end, because this is my perception right now that customers in the market require this end-to-end consideration of, of AI projects. This could really make us a big player in here because the preconditions are there. And if you look to our big competitors like AWS and Google and so on, they also start to establish this edge portfolio. And we, we see that they're heavily pushing in, in branches where we are currently uh, working. So, And I think what I said before, have a realistic view on how challenging AI in industry could sometimes be. And then... Maybe think a little bit about if AI sells today in a let's say in a scalable manner like our yeah IPCs sell. And okay, let me think of one more thing that you might be dealing with, because I think that's the most interesting about your field is, so you're very advanced when it comes to AI and the uh, for industry. But one thing you might also be dealing with is the phase of like the last few years of AI, a lot of neural networks and stuff really makes it tough to really understand what's going on there. I think the more classical approaches are way more understandable. How are you dealing with this, with customers, for instance, with the explainability of AI? What are the things they request from you? Is this really an issue or, or not really? How do you see this? Yeah, on, on the one hand, you, you mentioned it in our projects, if you can't really explain the decisions that were made by, for example, uh, deep neural nets and, and uh, you're outweighing, for example, um, experienced experts with that decisions, there's always a, um, yeah, let's say, a barrier towards trust. And if, for example, methods of explainable AI could help to yeah, also educate other people how these models and algorithms came to the decision they made, I think this would be a great, great lever uh, to to establish more trust in, in AI systems in general. And maybe I think this explainable AI will play a crucial role. And I would personally love to see more beyond, um, let's say, industrial domains. For example, when it comes to our daily life, because as you know, we are all affected and surrounded by algorithms making decisions and forecasts and recommendations on, on a secondly basis in our smartphones and tablets and so on. And I think we we are still having a a gap of of education, especially younger generations. I think it would be uh, very beneficial to make them aware how how does our daily life, how does the social media, how does it work? How does YouTube come up with the next recommendation? And maybe explainable AI can help in in educating society there because we can't avoid AI. It will be circumventing us or the are surrounding us uh, in in the in the next decades, but I think we can work on on education here, and explainable AI will surely be a lever. This is something you also see at home, like uh, your your son you mentioned. Yeah, I mean he's uh, almost two years old, and actually I try to hide <laughs> the smartphone and tablet of him, but I think uh, as soon as he will start to consume the stuff, I will put great effort into to educate and then make him aware what he's going or what the internet presents to him, be it on YouTube, be it on, on Instagram, on Facebook, wherever uh, he will be or what will be existing at that time. I, I think this is a very, very mandatory thing that people know that AI is surrounding us and how does it function. 
Yeah. Speaking of, you know, um, being up to date or training, right? Getting hands on, getting into the field, right? If you if you consider now the the last years, right, which have been dominated by, you know, open source movement, young generation, right, uh, keen on having an impact, keen on getting into, you know, deep learning and machine learning methodologies, and the the open source and also the publication aspect, right, the space between, you know, pure research and on conferencing, let's say talking and showcasing its application is being really reduced, right? And it's with the speed of, of this field is progressing in, in machine learning methodologies, it's it's really hard to catch up, right? Because it's really hard to catch up with the latest algorithm, the latest research contributions implemented already in, in some kind of software development kit. How do you, in our side, right, we, we try to, we, we have established since, I don't know, three years, I guess, now an AI journal club, like a weekly reading club for, you know, preparing papers and discussing why is that relevant for industry, why we should have a closer look, right? But it's it's really hard to catch, catch up, right, with the latest advances. And I assume, right, for you, you know, having this um, responsibilities and being daily operation and all this stuff, you know, that seems to be really challenging. So what's, what's your ingredients? Any recommendations how to keep up with the technology stack? Yeah, this is a, indeed a good one. Um, keeps me up at night sometimes uh, because the, there's always a fear of, of uh, losing connection to the market or the technology that that's currently being developed or that could, for example, de- replace uh, our own developments. Uh, two things. I Personally, I keep myself updated uh, to an extent possible in, in, in blogs and, and articles on, on various channels, be it towards data science or on Medium, uh, what, what latest developers post or where people play around with stuff. Or my, my YouTube recommendation system works quite well in that sense. Uh, they also, uh, or it also recommends a lot of stuff to me. So reading and informing in the net is one thing, and yeah, really also in, with regards to the to the corporate technology we have, uh, this is of course a contact point where we have regular exchange to see what are latest advances on, for example, trustworthy and I AI, what are latest advances on or current technologies we could utilize in industry on future learning stuff like that. And secondly, I have to admit I'm 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 in a lucky situation that I have a team and, and the guys are really young and passionate about all the fancy technology and during weekends or in their spare time they do the same stuff like me I think and yeah it's coming from discussions with the team and and we discuss what's currently going on can we adopt to something and so on so I think it's a mixture of various various components here yeah uh, continuous learning i guess is the the tagging right which all faces us as technology geeks right exploring you know making failures but learning out of that and keeping keeping the ball if you look in you know in a bit a bit of the bigger field of you know what has been contributed in, in the broad field of machine learning right are there some aspects or certain you know events or contributions that we say like, hey that's pretty dope that's pretty awesome yeah, personally, I'm a big fan of reinforcement learning and especially the latest advances. I mean, latest means, let's say, last five years on deep reinforcement uh, learning. I got fascinated by the, the stuff from, from, from DeepMind and the, how they solved all the Atari games. And the bridge to industry I saw when I, or I had this, this moment when I saw the breakout game, which was quickly learned in, I don't know, about 300 games. I thought, nice, can be solved with 100% accuracy, so to speak, and then they let it run for a couple of more games and it came up with a with an optimized strategy of solving the game. And I thought, wow, this is this is cool and uh, all the other games that were solved. 
but let's see how, how this bridges to industry. And, and, and then I realized there's a huge potential in, in production optimization and flow control and everything that can be leveraged by these learning agents. And especially when I look in-house and I see our huge simulation portfolio and our expertise in reinforcement learning, I think bringing that together could be real value since... Yeah, talking for automotive, who of the automotive will let you fiddle around with a reinforcement learning agent on a press, for example? It will explode the costs, but with a digital twin or with a simulation model, you could pre-train all these agents or at least really fine-tune them towards the, the real applications later on in physics. And this could really be an asset for us. If you look then, you know, we're, you're playing in the, in somehow ecosystem is, you know, one of the, the, in the main also, you know, buzzes around that we see a strong move, you know, in digitalization, we see a strong move on collaborating, what it means collaborating, right? We see a strong move that, you know, it's, it's now a partner of networks. We're building these partner of networks. Sometimes they refer to as ecosystems, right? And we see that these networks exist in, you know, US centric or Asian centric, uh, but also in, in Europe. What do you think, you know, what is the chances that you and what you maybe find pretty awesome of the European-centric AI ecosystem? Any thought on that? Personally, I, I really, I'm looking forward how this big community can be established with all the ideas of the platform and the, the sharing within the community. What I'm mainly, let's say, excited about are the ideas on, on, on guidelines they want to establish around and, and ethics and responsible usage and trustworthiness of uh, AI. This is what I mentioned before. I think is today maybe a missing a puzzle compared to the importance that AI already plays in, in other markets than not only industry. And in that sense, I think combining all the countries and, and also following up on that stream This is something I'm, I'm really excited about, yeah. With that said, do you have an idea of, do you already have some internal guidelines you use? Maybe where you are, where you say, well, these things, they're not officially like set in stone yet, but these are things you would recommend as like the first starting point. Like, this is really important as a guideline, for instance. I mean, we don't have official guidelines, but we, I came along a couple of years ago, a use case where we found out that there were uh, dependencies on shift workers and, and efficiency uh, KPIs differed between really individual workers on the shop floor. And, and here we discussed long how to communicate that or should we hide it because it, it really affects people and you, it's, it's like a, you know, the efficiency lock of, of every individual. And sometimes you can read that out of the data, even if personal data is removed, but other variables indicate that or relate to that. So there we had that discussion, but here in that sense, I, I hope also for, for a more holistic regulatory framework or the guidelines. All right, thanks, yeah. So we, we're almost, almost at the end, but, you know, we always want to also a bit of sharing with the audience. Can you, you know, maybe share some kind of recommendations, books, courses, right, people that for geeks that want to go in the area of industrial-driven machine learning? Any, any recommendations? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, lots of stuff around. Personally, I'm twofold uh, in a way that, I, I think the math fundamentals should be somehow present. So any book like, I don't know, a machine learning book from Christopher Bishop or, or the elements of statistical learning by, by Hustier, this is maybe a, maybe it's, they are thick books, but the, the basics in there, introduction chapters are, could, could help a lot to get the basics. And then I would say 
hands-on experience and, and you really get your hands on in, in real industry projects that gives the, the best experience. So deal with imbalanced data, deal with, I don't know, crappy and shitty data and then really unclean data and not the MNIST data set. <laughs> yeah, follow up the, as I said, maybe the medium articles where people did something during night and set up new workflows and, and follow that code that uh, I think could help a lot or could be an, uh, a good start. Thanks. So that's uh, that's for the folks out there. You can now start somewhere. Let's end this session with something a little bit more fun. So I've got five phrases here, at least the first part of the phrases. And I'm going to say the first phrase. It's a little game we're going to play. I'm going to say the first part of the phrase, and you continue the phrase as is for you personally, like you would think makes the best. Okay. Okay. Innovation is... Taking place in real cool projects with a team that's passionate and dedicated, and there you... You can't really avoid innovation. And now maybe a very more personal one. My purpose is? My purpose is exactly what I'm doing right now. Beautiful. My favorite quote is? Uh, actually, I have two. One is from Pedros Domingos. It's uh, no data, nothing to learn, lots of data, lots to learn. And the other one is in God we trust, all others must bring data. Okay. And then last one, last one. My very own superpower is? Uh, chocolate. <laughs> Beautiful ending. I'm, I think I'm going to start a craving now. Thank you so much for being with us today. Also, Uli, thank you for co-moderating. I really appreciated adding your insights and, and your time, of course, as you invest in us. And with that, I think we would like to conclude this podcast for today. So folks out there, stay tuned. And there are so much more podcast episodes to come. So just stay bold, committed, and open-minded. And well, stick around for more. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.